Luke 23. When you come to the crucifixion or the resurrection, it's hard for me to decide whether to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They're all, they all tell the story in such a precious and wonderful and warm way, but I think tonight I'd like for us to look at it from the book of Luke just for a few moments and to notice four specific things concerning Calvary. May we pray together. Our Father, we thank Thee for everyone who has gathered at the midweek hour of power. Thank Thee for every visitor, every guest, for these beloved friends who have come from long miles, come back to bless our hearts with their presence in this place one more time. We thank Thee for them. And Father, we pray that as we look to the Word in our hearts, realize once again what Jesus did for us. May it, may it move us to live more in the climate of the cross. We pray for the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that thy Spirit would enlighten the Word to us. Somebody here who has never been saved, may they come to Jesus tonight. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen. Beginning in verse 33, when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. One of the malefactors who were hanged railed at him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying dost not thou fear god seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we receive the reward the due reward of our deeds but this man hath done nothing amiss and he said unto jesus lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom and jesus said unto him verily i say unto thee Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the spirit. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things that were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, 
And he was a good and righteous man. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, city of the Jews, who also wanted and waited for the kingdom of God. This man went into Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone in which never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also who came unto him from Galilee followed and behold the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Our Sunday school lesson next Sunday will discuss the resurrection narratives of Matthew and Luke. In that Sunday school lesson, if you'd like to get a copy of the outline, you may do so tonight in the Sunday school office. There's a note concerning a retired University of Tennessee professor of physics, Mr. Rusk. W. Roger Rusk, who said he had concluded several years ago that Jesus was crucified on Thursday instead of Friday. He had made a, an examination of the lunar tables from those past years, and he pointed out that historians generally agree that the crucifixion is based on the dating of Jesus' birth about the year 4 B.C., the fact that his ministry began at the age of 30. This would make 26 A.D. too early, he said, and would make 33 A.D. too late since his ministry lasted only three years. And in those two years, the feast of the Passover began on a Friday, and it was on the afternoon before the start of Passover that the crucifixion took place. Rusk said, a study of the lunar table shows that for a weekend the crucifixion, the year 30 A.D., was the only date that really fit the Passover schedule, and he calculated that the crucifixion likely took place April 6th, 30 A.D. If I know correctly, today is April 6th. Whether this be the very day of the crucifixion, we will not know until we get to glory, and perhaps that is not the important thing after all. The important thing is that Jesus came to die, and he accomplished that death. But it does move our hearts somewhat to suppose that it was a day like today, 1977 years ago, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Four things concerning Calvary I want to lay on our hearts tonight, very briefly. Number one, Calvary, Calvary was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Calvary was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you hold your Bible open at Luke 23 and turn to Hebrews 10 for just a moment, notice some important things that are said. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of those things can never with the sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make those who come to it perfect. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. 
Then said he in verse 9, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. References made in Hebrews 10 to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Once a year the priest would go into the, beyond the veil and offer a blood sacrifice on the mercy seat, which was a gold plate over the Ark of the Covenant. That gold estimated in today's marketable value to have been worth sixty thousands of dollars. And there the priest would offer a blood sacrifice, but before he did this, he would also put blood on an animal and send that animal out into the wilderness, signifying the remitting, the taking away of sins. And when he put that blood on the mercy seat, it was between the cherubs. And this was in the Hebrew thought where the presence of God dwelt. And the mercy seat became the propitiatory place, the meeting place between God and man. And he did this year after year after year after year after year as a symbol of something better to come. And when Jesus went to Golgotha, they hanged him on a cross. They drove cruel nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. Jesus, who had never sinned, took my place and your place as a sinner on the cross. At Calvary, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. It was torn all the way so that never again did a priest have to go beyond the veil to offer a blood sacrifice because Christ himself became the paschal sacrifice. And if we read the scripture carefully, we note, in my opinion, that Jesus died, that Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples the night before everyone else celebrated the Passover. And he died at the very time on the 14th of Nisan when the Passover lamb was being slain. And he became our Passover lamb. And so Jesus in his death, what he had accomplished at Calvary, fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. No longer do we have priests in Bible-believing churches. We have preachers who preach and proclaim the word of God. And all of us in one sense are preachers because we are to proclaim the wonderful truth that our salvation was accomplished in Christ. And there is no clergy and laity. We're all one in Christ. Secondly, Calvary was a coming to grips with sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he came to grips with sin. There is no other meaning for the cross than the meaning of sin. Because when he died, all of the sin of the world was hurled upon him. All of the abuse that men could muster was hurled at Jesus. They spit at him. They hurled abuses verbally at him. They flogged him. They drove the nails in his hands and feet. They drove a spear at his side. They planted a crown of thorns on his brow. All of it, the abuse of man for a fellow man. Now why did Jesus take it all? Because that execution was the execution of a sin. Now they could have stoned him, but it was written that he would be crucified. It was written from the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled perfectly everything the Old Testament spoke. But the reason Jesus had to die was to take the sinner's place. 
He became sin once and for all. He became my sin, your sin. He became the filthy, accursed rag of sin. We read in Hebrew, in, in, in Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. And in that same wonderful passage, the scripture indicates that Jesus became the accursed one. That is, he became the rag, the most filthy, dirty rag that you could imagine. You think in your home, you think in this town, you think of the garbage, you think of all the ugly things you could do with a rag and how dirty and filthy it could become. And I want to tell you, if it doesn't turn your stomach, Jesus became that for us. He became everything dirty, filthy, in that moment, all of our sins were accumulatively piled upon him. And he came to grips with sin. And he paid the price. That's the reason we believe in the security of the belief. All of our sins were judged in Jesus. Every one of them. Past, present, future. They were all judged in Jesus. And if we will accept him as our sin substitute, if we will accept him as our savior, then he becomes the scapegoat, as it were. He becomes the lamb slain from the foundation of the world to take away our sin. He is the one who took my death penalty that I deserved. And so Calvary was a coming to grips with sin. Now if that doesn't break our hearts, if that doesn't disturb us, if that doesn't send us back to live in the climate of the cross, to say, oh Lord, if you did all that for me, I don't want to go on sinning. If you accomplished on the cross my salvation, I don't want to go on living in a life of carelessness, a life of degradation, a life of open rebuke to thee. If I bear the precious name of Jesus, I don't want to go on living a discarded life, living a life that's fit for the trash heap. I want to live a life that honors Christ, that serves Him and lives for Him because of what He did for me on the cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. The emblem of shame was on that cross that the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. That's the meaning of the cross. The meaning of Calvary was a coming to grips with sin. The reason this cross pulpit is black is to picture the awful blackness of men's sin. The tyranny, the ugliness of it all. Thirdly, Calvary was an outpouring of God's love. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Why did Jesus stay on the cross? Was it because he was friendless? Did he not have any friends? Lloyd sang a while ago, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called 72,000 angels. He could have called 172,000 angels. He could have called thousands, myriads of angels to deliver him. He was not friendless. Why did Jesus hang on the cross? Was it because he was humanly weak? Scripture tells us that he had all power. He was God. He stayed on the cross because he loved us. There was none other good enough to open the gates of glory. Only Jesus. And so he died that we might live. It was an outpouring of his love. I know, yes, I know that he loves me so. He stands by the windows the long ages roll. 
Where an eon of time is the brush of his hand, yet the king of all kings seeks the love of each man. Should the light of the sun in time flicker and die, and the earth wander off like a tramp through the sky, the darkness can't hide me. He'll find me, I know. For men are his diamonds, and he loves me so. It is his love, the love of God poured out at Calvary. That love reaches to the highest heaven. It reaches to the lowest hell. There's not a man or woman or boy or girl in the city of Bowling Green or in your acquaintance who has gone so far away from God and so gotten so low in degradation and sin, but that the love of God would reach to him through Calvary. Because Calvary was a coming to grips with sin and an outpouring of God's love. Fourth and last of all, Calvary was a guarantee of heaven. A guarantee of heaven. That sinner that died next to him, that thief, one of the thieves cursed him, railed on him. If you're really the Son of God, come down and save yourself, said he. But the other one, I think he didn't even glance up to the cross, but with shame, knowing that he deserved what he was getting. He deserved the penalty for his sins. He was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. He was a thief. He deserved what he was getting. But he cried out, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what did Jesus say? This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. What did that thief have to do to get to heaven? Did he have to do penance? Did he have to get baptized? Did he have to join a church? Did he have to change his whole way of living? Did he have to hold out true to the end? It was a leap of faith. He placed his confidence and trust in the Son of God what he knew about him. He didn't know everything about him. He didn't know what you and I know about him. He couldn't answer all the theological questions. He didn't know anything even about the virgin birth or anything else. All he knew was here was somebody that had touched his heart and his heart <clears throat> moved out in faith and he said, Lord, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what was it Paul said to the Romans later that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. I don't believe people are saved if they don't have him as their Lord. Lord Jesus. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And that moment, that man, by faith, became part of God's wonderful family. I don't understand that. But I know that's the way I was saved. There were so many things I didn't understand the day I was saved. Oh, I didn't understand anything. Except I was a sinner. And Christ was a Savior, and I threw myself on Him the best way I knew how, by faith. And He came in, and He saved me, and forgave me. And He'll do the same thing for you, because Jesus saves. And Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. And if you look up in the original language, you know what that says? He that is on the way to me, I will not cast away. I will not turn him away. If you just get up and start, that's what that thief did. He never did get over it. I doubt if he even took Jesus' hand. He had no physical contact. He didn't have a chance to walk down the aisle. All he said was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But it was open. It was not a shame. He didn't do it privately in his heart. They all heard him. You see, there are no secret disciples in the work of the Lord. They're all open. That's the reason we give invitations for people to walk down the aisle and confess Christ openly. 
You say, I can stand in my pew and I can ask Jesus to come into my heart. Yes, friend. But if you really do it, it'll be open. You'll either do it with an open testimony or you'll walk down the aisle. You'll let others know it like that thief did. Because you can't keep it quiet. When Christ comes in, there's some explosion of faith that takes place that says, I want the world to know it. And Jesus said, he that comes to me, I will not cast him out. You come with your questions. You come with your sorrow. You come with your heartaches. You come with your burdens. Come with your faith. Come with your lack of faith. But come. And he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a minute. Our Father, we thank Thee for the goodness of love. We thank Thee that Jesus died to take our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Tonight, Lord, should there be even one person, a little boy, a little girl, a teenager, a young married person, somebody older in life, somebody that's a church member already but never saved, somebody here tonight that's never known you as Savior, Lord, never known the real forgiveness of sins, God help that that person will come to you tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let me stand, please. I want us to sing, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. What page is that? Number 96. And as we sing it, this is God's invitation to come to Calvary. To come to Calvary just as you are. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. If you're here tonight, friend, and you've never been saved, may I urge you to come to Christ, just like you are. Come with your sins, come with your burden, come with your faith, come with your lack of faith. There may be somebody here tonight who has just messed it all up. You've fumbled the ball, maybe you're having to sit over on the bench. But the Lord is just as forgiving and gracious and full of pity and love tonight as he ever was. And he wants to draw you back. He wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you to fellowship because he loves you. Would you come? And if there's somebody here who ought to move his letter to this church and become part of the fellowship of Glendale Baptist Church, you ought to come tonight. Do as the Holy Spirit leads your heart while we begin to sing. Step out for Christ. And I want to ask you, sing this big. Sing it from your heart. Sing it as you mean it. The years I spent as a testimony song. And if you need to come to Christ, please come tonight.